these are certainly uncertain times. Many questions, many questions I know that you are asking, that I am asking, that we are all asking in one way or another. How long is it going to take before that curve begins to be flattened? How long are we going to have to maintain this social distancing? When will the financial markets recover? When will life return to some sense of of normalcy? Is a cure for COVID-19 coming soon, or is it perhaps on the distant horizon? And as we wait, how likely is it that you or I might be infected? Those are all real, substantive, important questions. You're asking them, I'm asking them, your neighbor is asking them, your coworkers are asking them, whether you can see them or not. Our whole nation, this whole world is asking questions like that. And it's no wonder that many are beginning to ask yet another question. And that is, could it be that we are on the verge of a spiritual awakening with the props that we are so accustomed to leaning upon and relying upon having been knocked out from underneath us? Is it possible? Is it possible that we are moving towards a spiritual awakening? May it be. May it be. It wouldn't be surprising if something like that were to occur when you consider how the human heart, how every one of us longs for certainty in the midst of uncertain times. We long for truth and hope that we can hold to and that will hold up under us in the midst of the gray of, again, of that uncertainty. Can we have it? Can we find it? Is it just wish? Is, is, it, just, is it just a longing? Or is there an answer to it? If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, we are picking up right where we left off last week. Uh, After the trial of Pilate, uh, of Jesus before Pilate, excuse me, and after that horrific scourging, we see the mocking of Jesus and then the crucifixion. Matthew chapter 27, that's before the Gospels of Mark and Luke and John. Matthew is the the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels. Matthew 27, starting in verse 27 and reading on through verse 44. Matthew 27, starting in verse 27 and reading on through verse 44. Hear now God's word. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters And they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, 
But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Well, let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, what do we say after reading such words? What can we say? We ask that you would not allow a reading of this record to pass us by unnoticed, unfelt, such that our hearts would be unmoved, our lives be unchanged. Please have mercy upon us. Don't, don't let us be like the crowds, like the soldiers, like the religious officials, like the two robbers, as those who were right there, couldn't see, couldn't hear, and in some deep, dark way, refused to. Oh, would you have mercy upon us this morning and help us Help us to be rather like the the unnamed parties here in this reading that we know the other gospel records speak of. Some of your disciples, John, Mary, watching, listening, wondering, and who took that with them. And then after Sunday, they were changed. Oh, would you do the same in our lives, we pray. Help us to grapple with what we see and hear this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Great events have a revealing effect. Great events have a a revealing effect. Whatever level you want to think about that. So here's one, just building from a a lesser level to, to higher stakes, if I may. So a pop quiz reveals the knowledge, the understanding of the student. A terrible illness 
can reveal the moorings of a family. A horrific storm can reveal the cohesiveness of a community. A war can reveal the preparedness of a nation. You see? Great events have a revealing effect. No matter what level you may be thinking about, great events have a revealing effect. And the more that is at stake, the more that is revealed. Put it another way, the greater the event, the more the revelation. The more you learn, the more that you see, the greater the event. And that's certainly what we see as a dynamic as we consider the crucifixion. The greatest event, or part of, if you consider that whole weekend, Friday through Sunday, the greatest event that reveals so, so, so very, very much. At the very least, the crucifixion and the events surrounding the crucifixion was revealing. So much so that we can put it this way. The drama of Good Friday reveals timeless and vital realities. The drama of Good Friday reveals timeless and vital realities. Now, now, okay, what would that be? What, What realities, what timeless and vital realities does, in fact, Good Friday reveal, show us, expose to us? Three things. Three things. First, the horror of our sin the horror of our sins. Secondly, the wonder of God's love. The wonder of God's love. And thirdly, thirdly, the pattern for our lives. Those three things, the horror, the wonder, and the pattern. Let's look at these three three things in, in turn. First, the horror of our sin. Good Friday, the events surrounding Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus reveals, exposes, whether we want to see this or not, as uncomfortable and painful as this may be for us to reckon with or not, we see the horror of our sin revealed. Consider with me, just for a moment, what they did to Jesus. What they did to Jesus. The gospel records are unified and and certainly accurate and trustworthy. And in fact, those aren't the only records that we have that we can appeal to that, that from ancient sources that speak to the event of, of Good Friday from an historical standpoint. You have the Jewish historian Josephus speaking of this. You have the Roman historian Tacitus speaking of this. You have the Stoic philosopher Serapion speaking, all three in the first and early second century, speaking to the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, the gospel records give us the details. They don't just allude to it. They don't just speak to the fact of it. They actually give us the details of what happened. Now, I say that, and it's interesting to note that when it comes to the actual crucifixion, they are very sparing in what they say. And the reason is simply this. For the ancient reader and the person in the Greco-Roman era, they knew well, far too well, what was involved with the horror of crucifixion. That, because that's exactly what it was. It was horrific. It was a thing to be reviled. People were, naturally, if you and I had been there, we would have been repulsed by this. Crucifixion was designed to be the most painful and shameful way to put a man or woman to death that the Romans could possibly think of. 
That was its design, the, the, the physical pain that any victim of crucifixion went through was, was beyond imagining. The shame involved. Beaten, stripped naked, nailed, and then made a public spectacle for everyone to see in the hours or perhaps even days that it took the victim to die. This is the, just utterly painful, utterly shameful. It was, it was, as it was designed to be, horrifically dehumanizing. And that's what they did to Jesus. That's what they did to Jesus. Now, moving from what they did, let's consider what they said. That, too, is pretty horrific when you consider what it is that they're saying and who it is that they're saying it to and of. So we have the soldiers, the soldiers, and, and the, the whole passage, three times you see this word mockery, and it clearly is meant to, there's an emphasis there, we're meant to understand that this is the, one of the worst things that Jesus is undergoing beyond the physical agony is the mockery, and the soldiers, the soldiers, that's where it begins. They, they dress Jesus up in the most mocking way, insulting way, p- p- play pretend soldier, king, king. That's how the soldiers treat him. And then, of course, abuse him, not just hitting him once upon the head with the crown of thorns, but repeatedly, repeatedly. So there's the, the physical and the psychological abuse that Jesus undergoes there. Then, then we have the passers-by, the people on the street, who, if you can imagine, if you can take an insult like a rock and strike someone with it by throwing it, they're hurling insults at him. And then you have the religious officials doing all that they can to press it and make it worse. And then as though that's not bad enough, you have these two men on the left and the right who are just hearing what's being said and chiming in, just parroting what they've heard and throwing it at Jesus. So consider what they did to him and consider what they said to him and the amazing, striking irony of all of this because what did they call him? How did they refer to him as actually who he was and is the Son of God and the King of the Jews, the King of Israel? That is, in fact, who he is. These folks, even in the midst of their abuse, spoke far better than they knew. They spoke far, far better than they, than they knew or understood. Friends, all of this shows us the horror of our sin. We get a glimpse into the evil that is lodged deep down within the human heart. We're forced to reckon with what you and I are capable of doing at any given moment. These things. These, these things. This is so incredibly humbling. So incredibly humbling. This, this is why. This is why when you read in the news of the Better Business Bureau sending out alerts uh, 
of scammers right now who are trying to um, manipulate the fears of the populace regarding COVID-19 and take advantage of that, to work that, if you will, to their, to their advantage. That's why when we hear that and such things, or looters, just a few weeks ago, looters in the streets of Nashville, in East Nashville, where the tornado ripped through, and just in the minutes and hours immediately after the devastation, such people came in. and were. It's why when we hear such things, read such things, we shouldn't be surprised because of the reality of the depravity of the human heart. We shouldn't be surprised, and yet again, we have to emphasize this, we should be sobered. Because those same impulses lie within you and I. They're right there, like a cauldron of snakes, just waiting for the opportunity to strike. And this is what makes the cross necessary. This is why Jesus had to die. This is why it had to be this way. So you see, the horror of our sin is put on display. It is exposed. It is revealed by the events surrounding the crucifixion. These timeless and vital realities are revealed to us here. But that then takes us to the second point, and that being the wonder of his love. The wonder of his love. The horror of our sin is put on display, as is the wonder of his love. Why did Jesus come? What was his mission? What was the point? Well, stay there in Matthew 27. Turn with me to the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, which makes it abundantly clear why Jesus came. This is a text that we oftentimes bring out at Christmas time. This is the angel coming to, confronting Joseph. There in Matthew 1, starting in verse 20, But as he, that's Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So from the very beginning... This is Jesus' mission. This is why he came. And once that mission is accomplished, it is a clear demonstration of his love for us. It couldn't be made any clearer. So, if you, again, stay there in Matthew 27. Turn with me to Romans. So, after the Gospels, you have Acts, and then you have Paul's uh, magnum opus, his great letter uh, to the Romans, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Listen to what Paul writes here. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you, you recognize what this means. It means that while, of course, we uh, understandably have a lot of questions with, Lord, what are you doing? On a grand scale, on my own personal scale, what are you doing? We have a lot of questions regarding his ways. We need never question his love. We need never question his love. We see it clearly demonstrated. If you ever wonder, look at the cross. Look, go back to Good Friday, Look at that hill, look upon that bloody cross and that man hanging in the middle between those other two, and there you know, whatever that else is, the explanation behind what's going on, it can't be he doesn't love us. 
We can be assured of that. We can be absolutely positively assured of that. So we know the wonder of his love. We see it in why he came. We see it also in why he stayed. Why he stayed upon the cross. Endured what, what he endured. The taunts. Oh, my goodness, the taunts. Can we, I, I, I hate to go back there. It's painful to read, but we have to. Verses 41 to 43, back to Matthew 27. This is in that third wave that Jesus endures of the mocking. This is from the religious officials, verses 41 and 43. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And again, you just hear the cruelty and the irony and the foolishness just dripping, emanating, if you can say shining forth uh, from what they're saying. You understand that in a moment, he could have come down. He could have called those 12 angels, those 12 legions of angels down and be done with it. He could have called them down. He could have come down. He could have saved himself. Absolutely. One problem. Then he couldn't have saved us. So he couldn't save himself because he came to save us. The wonder of his love. The wonder of his love. And how, do, how does he respond even in that moment, right? To these taunts, to these insults, what do you hear? A deafening silence. Jesus lodges no protest. He attempts no defense. And of course, oh my goodness, could he ever would it have been justified? Absolutely. And the silence is deafening. Why? Because he is bearing our sin, guilt, and shame to the uttermost. It has to be this way. The events surrounding the crucifixion Reveal the wonder of his love for us. Oh, my goodness. So just thinking about this for a moment. Can, can we be so loved and then be unmoved? Can we see his heart for us and then remain unchanged? Can we reckon with what they've done to him and said to him and how he's endured it and the manifestation of his love and then feel no obligation or response or feel a challenge of any kind? My friends, you see, the, the wonder of his love is the ground of Christian obedience. It is the soil from which discipleship springs and grows and flourishes. The wonder of his love, and that's the only ground of Christian obedience. That's the only thing that impels it, is the wonder of his love. Also, we have to say that the ground of Christian assurance is found in the wonder of his love as well. Because here's what we know. Here's what we discover in this. 
the certainty and the security that we have in his love, in his care, in his mercy, in his grace towards us. What do we see here? We see that it doesn't matter how badly we mess up. It doesn't matter how far we've drifted. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. His love for you right now is as secure as he allowed his body to be upon that cross. It is unshakable. Such as the wonder of his love for you and for me now. Now. So you see that what kind of uh, timeless, vital realities we're speaking of, that the, the cross, the, the uh, dynamics, the, the event of surrounding Good Friday and the, thing, the events surrounding all of this, uh, the wonder of his love. Lastly, lastly, the pattern for our lives. So we see, again, the horror of our sin, the wonder of his love, and now the pattern for our lives. Put it this way. What do we do with this now? What do we do with this? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What would it mean to respond to these things in a real way, in a way that is congruent with the gravity of what we're seeing here? Well, it's not that we're left to guess. Jesus, time and again, in his teaching, makes it very plain, this is what it means to respond to my love in accord with what I've told you. Matthew chapter 16 is just one place that we could go. Uh, Matthew 16, it's certainly very clear. Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Oh my. Well, that's the teaching. He's told us now what it means to follow him, what the pattern of our lives is to look like. It's where do we go from here? Well, there's the answer. How did the disciples respond to that? Well, initially, of course, and understandably, they were quite confused and a bit concerned because he's speaking to them. Well, what would that then mean for me to follow you in this way? What would it mean for us to follow him in this way, which then takes us to Simon's story. Simon, Simon of Cyrene, the man that we read of here in Matthew 27. So look with me at verse 32. Verse 32, it's all we have about this man, but it is so much, it is so pregnant with its implications. As they, this is the Roman soldiers, this is the um, parade, if you will, of the soldiers and Jesus and those who were tailing behind, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. So here's what we know. Simon Simon is from a region called Cyrene. We know that this is an a area there in northern Africa that had a, a fairly large Jewish population. Likely Simon is there in Jerusalem at this time for the Passover celebration. And he sees this parade of this man being led out to the, the place of the skull. And he is impressed into service, not voluntarily. He's drafted, if, if you will, by the Romans. And just as a side note, in Mark's gospel, Mark makes reference to two of Simon's sons. And one of them is also mentioned by Paul in his letter to the Romans, all of which is meant to serve as a historical footnote, helping the reader to understand, oh, this is who this guy is and some connections, and I know these people. And 
the authors are, are tagging into that and emphasizing that point. So here's Simon, and here's Jesus. Jesus has an, his body, all completely man, completely God. He is, he is physically wasted. He's got nothing left. The scourging and the blood loss have left him in such a state physically that he is in no state to carry that 40-pound crossbeam. Therein, Simon is impressed into service. What is the significance of this? Why am I pressing on this point? Simon was an historical figure. He also forms for us a symbolic image. A symbolic image. Remember last week, if you were here uh, watching last week at any point, you may remember that I mentioned that Barabbas, again, an historical figure, helps us to understand what it means for Jesus to die in our place. A real man, but there's some significance to that in giving us an image, a symbol of what it means, what it's like to have Jesus stand in your place. We see the same thing now with Simon, Simon of Cyrene, and here we learn something of what it is to bear your cross what it means, what it looks like to bear the cross. You see, the Lord in His kind, gracious providence doesn't just tell us these things. He shows us. He shows us. He recognizes that we need not just words but images as well. And again, again, what we're seeing here is that the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, is revealing to us something of the pattern that our lives are meant to take as disciples. More specifically, what does it mean to take up your cross? What does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? It means, if I can put it this way, you're all in. You're all in. You are trusting him to the uttermost, completely, such that you are willing to do whatever it is that he calls you to do, to go wherever it is that he calls you to go, and even thank him for whatever he brings into your life. You are trusting him to the uttermost. You are all in. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow him. Well, what might that mean specifically in these days, in the time of pandemic? Well, it's the same for us all, but different. It's the same for us all, but different. What I mean by that is is this. It, It necessitates every one of us going to the Lord and asking him, what does it mean, Lord? in this time, in these circumstances, for me to, to take up my cross and follow you. What does that mean? That's what, in terms of the individual sense, but then the, the broader sense, the general sense that applies to all of us is, what does it mean in this time for me to, yes, live, be careful and cautious, yet at the same time be filled with compassion, creativity, and courage? And if you're leaning on one of those harder than the other, you're imbalanced. You're imbalanced. And we have to go to the Lord and ask him for his help and his wisdom. Again, this is the pattern. This is the pattern that we see what it means to follow him. And again, the the events, the idea being that the events surrounding Good Friday reveal to us these timeless, vital realities. This is why, this is why 
Through the ages, no few individuals have spoken of the, the centrality of the cross. When they speak of the Christian faith, the centrality of the cross, for three reasons. First, you think of the, the proportions of the Gospels. That is to say, the amount of emphasis that the gospel writers give to Jesus' last week on earth. How many biographies have you read where the writer puts that much emphasis on the last week of their subject's life? I would venture to say none other than the gospels. So we have the proportionality of the gospels, which tells us something about the centrality of the cross. Then we have Jesus' predictions again and again and again, four times in Matthew's gospel, actually. And you see the similar patterns in the other three. Jesus is telling his disciples, I must go to the cross. I am going to Jerusalem, and I must go. It is necessary. I have to. I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. Again, speaking to the centrality of the cross. We have not just the proportionality of the gospels, and the predictions that Jesus gives, but the provision that Jesus makes with the Lord's Supper for us. How does he want us to remember him? How does he want us to remember him? Not by his life, but by his death. Not by, ultimately, not by his life, but by his death. By his broken body and his shed blood. Again, these things driving towards the Christian faith has at its center, at its core, the cross. Think what other symbols could have been used, right, through the ages? Oh, goodness, what could we use? We could think of, well, why not a manger symbolizing his birth? Why not a carpenter's bench symbolizing his early years? Why not uh, some loaves and fish symbolizing one of his most famous miracles? Why not a scroll symbolizing his wise teaching. But no, it's not any of those because those aren't at the center. It's the cross. Because it's the cross that is at the very heart, at the very center of the Christian faith. Again, these events surrounding Good Friday take us into the heart of Christianity, revealing for us these timeless, vital realities, the horror of our sin the wonder of his love, and not only that, but the pattern of our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we see and learn so much here, the horror, why the cross was necessary, the wonder, what it really means for us to say that love means sacrifice, and the pattern the ongoing implications for every one of us who would call ourselves disciples. Oh, we ask that you would please help us to live out of what we are learning here. Disturb us and rouse us where that is appropriate. Comfort and encourage us where that is appropriate. In the things that were before us just a month ago, when it felt then like our plates were already full, and now so much extra has been added, another layer Oh, would you help us? The cross is central to the Christian faith, central to the gospel. We ask that you would make it so in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, that concludes uh, this streaming service.